important issue of these times is the issue of confronting loneliness. We'll talk about the ramifications, why loneliness is such an important consideration to address, and then how we address it. We'll be talking about ways in addition to connecting that we can uh, ameliorate the devastating emotional experience of loneliness. So let's dive right in. The human brain, as I, it seems I start every other talk with, is a social organ. Everything about the human brain was, or developed, was dedicated to meeting the needs and maintaining social bonds, social affiliations. We have an innate psychobiological system, massive prefrontal cortex, which allows us to connect with others through language and emotions, dorsal anterior cingulate cortex, that creates that innate psychobiological system that impels us to establish proximity with others for a sense of security. Uh, we are a species that survives by connecting. In our species case, the way we survived was not by flying away or swimming away from threats, but by bonding with others. And given that connecting was the key to our species survival, evolution made sure that our brains developed all of the circuits and regions and neural connections to impel us to sustain and maximize the benefits of our interpersonal connections. So emotional loneliness, which is the absence of secure attachment figures, which means people that we can turn to when we're faced with threats or overwhelming stress or setbacks in life, someone that we can go to for soothing and emotion regulation, people who calm us down, listen, and help us frame experience in a way that uh, doesn't lead us to wind up with maladaptive cognitions, such as uh, when people don't have other people to turn to after setbacks and stressful events, they tend to blame themselves or believe that everything bad that happens is just happening to them. It creates feelings of uniqueness and there's something wrong with me and core shame and so forth. So there's emotional loneliness is when we don't have that person or a small group of attachment figures, core friends that we can turn to for soothing and regulation during difficult times. And then there's social loneliness, which is the absence of a wider circle of um, people that allow us to develop a sense of belonging to a community. And this is because throughout our species evolution, it was not just important to have people to provide for us and take care of us when we were sick and help us um, grow and process difficult experiences, but it was also necessary for a species to have tribal affiliations because we would, our species was tribal. And that's how the bulk, not just of Homo sapiens, but all the way back to um, the Heidelbergs and Homo agaster and all the previous versions of our species uh, survived too, was by tribal affiliations. So social loneliness is the absence of a wide circle of people that allow us to, to feel that we're in a community. That's important to distinguish loneliness versus solitude. Solitude is the often healthy state of being alone after we have appropriate levels of interactions with others. It can be a vital and necessary need to disconnect uh, at times from our social obligations to turn inwards and to 
uncover and appreciate our core needs and what really matters to us. And so we Buddhists go on retreats very often as a way to um, to reconnect with our internal experience through mindfulness and meditative practices. But solitude isn't tinged with feelings of disconnection, nor is it uh, does it lead to uh, maladaptive emotional states, behavioral impulses, nor um, severe consequences to our physiological health. And while Buddhist uh, monks do meditate, meditate in solitude a lot, they actually live in community. So Buddhist practice of at times having solitary meditation is always counterbalanced by robust social bonds. They always uh, feel seen and connected. Now, loneliness is a state of feeling disconnected, feeling unseen, sensing that our internal experience isn't of interest to others. And so we can feel lonely surrounded in a crowd of other people. It's not about how many people are around us, but do we feel that our internal states are known by others, cared about by others? Uh, someone can have, you know, 5,000 Facebook friends, 10,000 Instagram followers and still be extremely lonely. Uh, people can be very rich and run huge companies where with staffs of hundreds of people that report to them. And but if they don't feel that their internal emotional landscape is known through vulnerable disclosure and through uh, reciprocal care, it won't it won't meet the core needs we have of connection, it, we will feel still lonely. So loneliness is considered to be a prevalent global problem throughout you know, all adult populations. There isn't a country nor a social system that adequately alleviates loneliness throughout its population. And it leads to chronic conditions like heart cardiovascular disease, stroke, obesity, and deeply concerning cognitive deterioration, and it speeds up the progression of Alzheimer's disease. Uh, we are 50% more likely to die prematurely if we have a deficit of healthy social connections. And it's been shown to be as lethal, feeling lonely as a predominant uh, emotional state is been shown to be as lethal as smoking 15 cigarettes a day. So basically it's like almost a pack a day of cigarettes in terms of our health. Now there's common symptoms that come with loneliness along with the telltale feelings of uh, anhedonia, lack of joy, feeling of, of perhaps uh, longing for others or a feeling of sh core shame about ourselves. There's headaches, anxiety, gastrointestinal is issues. And uh, very often over time, individuals with pronounced periods of disconnection from others experience an uptick in paranoid ideations. They start to feel more and more uh, 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 there's something wrong with them or there's something unique about them. The lonelier, the less connected we are whenever we, as I said, have a setback, we tend to interpret setbacks as somehow our fault. We seem to, we, as the Buddha noted, we overlook the universality of, of difficult experiences in life. 
because it's only through connecting with others, as the Buddha noted in the Kisakotami teaching, that we uh, override the uniqueness belief that there's something wrong with me or I'm somehow being a victim of life when bad things happen. Um, according to uh, the social neuroscientist Gianni Franchetti, he wrote that the onset, I'm going to read it, where is it? The onset of panic disorder, there is typically significant passages of separation that precede the onset of panic disorder and are usually underestimated by people. And he gives quotes, I moved to another city and left my group of friends. My partner stopped a relationship with me. I got a new and better position in a company and went to live by myself. These are some of the common statements of people who experience a sudden uptick of panic disorder due to loneliness. Um, we, he noted, we invariably found feelings of being more exposed to the world by uh, experiencing less vibrant social relationships before the panic disorder was experienced. So uh, along with panic disorder, there's also been studies showing insomnia as a major symptom. Uh, people sleep better knowing they have vibrant social connections. So we become prone to even greater feelings of loneliness due to the feedback loop associated with loneliness. When people feel uh, there's not enough uh, positive attachments in their life, they, as we said, as I noted earlier, there's a tendency to view oneself as being less than or unlovable or profoundly unique and different from others because we don't have enough uh, interaction showing us that our experiences are normal or not that unusual. And as these cognitions of there's something unusual or uh, there's something of my, my sense of self that's uh, at deficit, it leads us to isolate even more because we believe that if we do go out and interact with people socially, they'll see this part of us that's unlovable or, un, uh, or uh, broken. And so that creates a social anxiety that makes us stay away and, and practice avoidance cope, coping. So it creates this feedback loop, the lonelier we feel, the less likely we are to go out and connect with others, which creates even greater um, uh, of the associated uh, symptoms that we talked about, the anxiety, depressive disorders, the insomnia, the panic, the, and so forth. Uh, it leads to, uh, as we'll say, a severe diminishment of uh, and crucial neurotransmitters. The dorsal anterior cingulate cortex of the parietal lobe is um, the alarm center of the brain, uh, one of the alarm centers along with the amygdala, but it monitors social interactions uh, with others. And if it seems that others are forming negative opinions by their nonverbal cues, or if it seems that others are turning away from us, the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex on detecting social exclusion activates um, both the amygdala and the adrenal glands and cortisol go, levels go up, but also it lowers the, secre the secretion of the neurotransmitters and, and so forth and uh, neuropeptides that make us feel good. It lowers serotonin, dopamine, and endorphins. So why does it do that? Why does it make us feel bad? Well, the goal is to, through creating negative affects, negative emotional states, to encourage us to connect more. It's kind of like an emotional signal from the back to the front frontal lobe saying, 
creating the sense of loneliness by dropping serotonin, which allows us to relax and feel safe and and stop overthinking and dropping endorphins which makes our bodies feel comfortable and pleasant and by dropping dopamine which makes us feel rewarded it altogether creates the felt sensations we know as loneliness which is meant as daniel lieber no not matthew lieberman uh famous loneliness and social expert uh, neuropsychologist notes that pushes us to connect with others. The great evolutionary psychologist, Robin Dunbar, I just read another book of him, Human Evolution, where he shows that the entirety of human evolution was geared to help us sustain social evolution. Uh, noted that individuals prosper when they have five or six close emotionally co-regulating individuals because that's what we've had throughout the core of evolution we used to travel and for hundreds of thousands of years as our species um, developed we traveled in nomadic small groups of clans made up of five or six other individuals who knew everything that was going on with us and maintaining those affiliations was essential to our survival if you were kicked out of the clan you would die that was the nature of living so the most important concern of the brain more so than even collecting food and shelter was to maintain social bonds uh, the work of the great social neuroscientist John Cocciopo noted that um, when he was talking about how important robust close friendships are, he said um, it's not being a client of a therapist that even fulfills needs. Um, we need to have rich reciprocal bonds. And he said, avoiding loneliness is not about getting, not about being a recipient, but about mutuality, a sense of interconnection and providing and getting aid from others. The Buddha said that in the Kalyanamita Sutta, no, in the Upada Sutta, uh, about talking about Kalyanamita, which is close friends, uh, admirable friends are the whole of the spiritual path. Without good friends, we can't follow or sustain any spiritual path. So when he was asked, is close friends half of the path? He said, no, it's the entirety. And he defines what a close friend is in the Mita Sutta. He says, wise friends are people who endure our pain, who put up with our difficult words, who share our secrets together with us, but keep our secrets safe, i.e. they don't gossip about us. When setbacks occur, a friend won't desert, judge, or shame us. So that's his definition. And we know from the works of Alan Shore, Dan Siegel, and all the other effective neuroscientists like Jack Pansep, that the way we feel secure in the world is by neurocepting, which means unconsciously scanning the facial expressions of others for nonverbal cues, eye contact, smiles, a positive regard, a friendly gesture, and so forth. And it's those nonverbal cues that meet the dorsal anterior cingulate cortex's definition of uh, positive social connections. And when that happens, then we, voila, we feel better. Our serotonin levels increase, our, our endorphins start to be secreted and so forth. So unfortunately, social media friends, texts, emails, don't in any way ameliorate loneliness because the key is it's not about words, it's about nonverbal cues that happen in real interactions with people. Now, of course, those real interactions can occur over FaceTime or Zoom or Google Meet or some, but trying to get our core needs met by uh, 
texting someone is or posting something on social media will never work. It does not reduce in any meaningful way the negative uh, consequences of loneliness. So crucial to uh, maximizing the stability, the stabilizing effects of Zoom if we're connecting with people over the internet rather than in person due to the pandemic is to disclose our affects, our feelings, what's going on with us internally and to disclose intrusive unwanted thoughts. Those are the keys. That's the, the absolute gold standard of connecting with another human being. Find someone with whom you can disclose what only you know about your internal experience. Reveal it to someone who's safe, someone who'll listen, who won't judge, shame, or reject you. And then hopefully someone who will do the same so that you feel a mutuality and a sense of belonging to uh, a relationship. Um, with enough of these reliable interactions, the mind assumes the capability of self-soothing and um, we've become more resilient. We have what's called a self, a felt sense of connection. And that felt sense is um, very important for us to understand because it lies at the core of uh, addressing loneliness. Um, it's called, another way of putting it is object constancy or a secure base. They all mean the same sense. Uh, in childhood, when a child has a secure bond with the caregiver, it develops the secure base or object constancy, which means it senses that even when it's alone, there are other people that care about it. And so when the child always has that conviction that I'm important to others, that other people care about me, that child then goes out and explores the world around it because it knows that if it gets scared by you know, a dog or another kid or it bumps its toe or whatever, if it scrapes its knees, the child knows that there is a caregiver available who will be responsive and, and soothing and that the child can explain what happened and that the parent won't be judgmental or frustrated. So that child then has all of the benefits of secure attachment, a secure base. The child is more likely to be confident in relationships. The child is more likely to explore the world. The child will be more creative. The child will be more likely to express all of its affects and will not uh, develop a false self, performative self and so forth and so on. But if the child doesn't get uh, a sense that there are reliable people available, then that child either becomes anxious or avoidant. Uh, anxious individuals have a tendency to um, be preoccupied, have lots of intrusive, repetitive ideations. They suffer from anxiety disorders because ultimately there's a, a lack of security in relationships and a sense that abandonment is always in the offing. And uh, on the other hand, some children and adults wind up avoidant, where they try to minimize their needs of others. They become extremely self-reliant. They, uh, they will undertake risks, but they become extremely prone to depression and sustaining real relationships become almost impossible. They minimize their needs and become distant. Uh, they don't disclose anything internally to others. And over time, uh, they become subject to alcoholism and other behavioral disorders, just like anxiety uh, leads to maladaptive disorders. So, the goal is to interject an object or a secure base, 
an object constancy or secure base or a felt sense that we matter to others. And this, if we do this, even if at times we experience loneliness, we can use object constancy or this image of another who cares about us. If we practice it enough, we can burn it into the right hemisphere. And it's known as secure priming. There's been massive studies by people like Omri Gilead and Daniel P. Brown and many others. Um, security priming has many different forms. Um, it shows in significant increase in mood stability, resilience, uh, and the ability to be alone. We know from the work of Lowry and Eisenberger and Sinclair and others. Um, and so how do we burn into the brain this object constancy, this sense that other people care about me, the sense that uh, of a figure that is securely available, reliable. Uh, it's a felt sense that we want to burn in. Well, we need to bypass all of the language and, and the thinking centers of the left brain, which have very little input to the emotion of emotions of loneliness, that which are almost entirely right hemispheric and parietal and temporal. So what we want to do is use images, images rather than phrases, telling ourselves, I am lovable, people care about me, while you know, those that they, they there was they were in vogue for a while back in the 80s. Um, positive affirmations actually don't have been shown to have very little positive outcomes. So images though do because the right brain uh, interprets images very often as if they're actual lived experiences. So uh, we want to either, uh, some of the many practices <coughs> include visualizing ourselves in a friendship or core relationship where we feel all our needs are met. You don't have to visualize the other person. You just create in your mind an image of what it would be like to have a real secure attachment in your life, someone present as a background sensation, just someone available. And you visualize the setting, the, you know, the scene where you're relaxing, there's someone there that cares about you, that's available, that if you need to share or disclose or talk about something painful, they'll be uh, reliably present. Um, it can be challenging ourselves to recall positive memories of being connected with friends, which increases our serotonin production. And um, the Buddha was very big on a practice called Kaganusati, sitting and bringing to mind all of the experiences of generosity and kindness we've experienced from others. Uh, the work of the famous attachment psychologist Daniel P. Brown at Harvard talks about um, as a way to address the shame of loneliness, uh, visualizing uh, experiences that enact our highest sense of self, things that we do well that are of benefit to others, and then visualizing other people looking at us with appreciation with recognition, with a sense of, of uh, acceptance, and so forth. In early Buddhism, another, another practice, in addition to Kaganusati, was Devanusati, which was visualizing an angelic spiritual force that was a protective spirit that cared about us and would intervene if we... Uh, experience setbacks or difficult times. In early Buddhism, um, about 2,500 years ago, it was not unusual for practitioners to sit out in the uh, woods uh, where there would be all kinds of 
threats, uh, there would be not only real threats, wild boars, elephants, tigers, and bandits were quite common. but also there were imaginary threats. It, at the time, 2,500 years ago, it was very common in the Indus Valley region for people to believe in ghosts and malignant spirits out in the forests and jungles. So they would practice Deva Nusati, visualizing, calling to mind protective, caring spirits. So it doesn't even have to be a human being. Um, many have noted that the very concept of God is a really a compensatory for many people attachment figure that is used to address feelings of loneliness and disconnection from others. So no judgment, whatever form of burning in an image or a felt sense of connection works for you. The key is that we have to do it regularly It's not a one and done thing. All uh, practices that actually um, allow us to in any way recover or address uh, any issues in our life are required daily practice, require patience, require a degree of patience and endeavor. And so before we actually put into practice these two early Buddhist techniques of addressing loneliness, I'd also like to note that um, uh, other ways we can also help when we go through sustained periods of loneliness, uh, regular exercise leads to the secretion of endorphins in the ventral tegmental region is Uh, also where the dopamine receptors are. And over time, this leads to more available, efficient dopamine receptors, which in terms helps us feel a greater sense of ease, reward, motivation, and hope in our life. So essentially regular exercise can slightly address the, or counter counterbalance the reduction of endorphins and serotonin, and I mean, sorry, dopamine associated with loneliness. So that's something that can help. And stimulating the vagal nerve, the vagal nerve is activated when people feel socially connected. The vagal nerve is a uh, nerve that runs from the back of the brainstem, or the brainstem itself down the neck to the front of the throat and then fans out in two directions to the face and down the body. And the vagal nerve is a kind of a break that allows us to relax and feel safe. And it switches on to shut down the sympathetic nervous system, which is fight, flight, fear, etc. So if you can stimulate your vagus nerve by, for instance, putting a warm hand on the back of your neck and a hand on your heart center, or a hand, both hands on your forehead, cupping your eyes, and so forth, stimulating the vagal nerve has been shown to be a very efficient way to uh, create sensations of security associated with connection with others. So I think that's enough for a talk. And now I'm going to actually lead us into this early Buddhist practices to address uh, loneliness. And so I'm going to encourage you to find your most comfortable position. It doesn't matter to me if you want to lie down or you want to sit up. It doesn't matter to me if you want to, uh, you know, uh, stand or lie on your side, whatever makes you most comfortable. There's no expectations of posture, anything like that. And while you do that, if you'd like to support my work, um, you can do so by the Venmo Dharma Punks with an XNYC or the PayPal button on the site. Thanks for that. So now let's close our eyes.
or if you like, you can keep them open, but don't focus them on any uh, event going on outside. Just allow them to remain unfocused or just look at the ground in front of you. I like closing my eyes. It makes it easier for me to do the image-based practices that we'll be employing. And let's take this time to just relax the body, much like in yoga practice with Savasana. We can, if we're uh, lying down, you can tense progressively up your body muscles and then relax them. If you're sitting upright, just you can just squeeze all of the muscles and then release and just uh, let them drop. The reason we want to squeeze or activate the muscles is studies show that the action potential that's stored up in muscles is more efficiently released when we actually activate the muscles. Very often in our busy lives, as we rush through our days, we build up a degree of expectation in each muscle that we're going to use them. And uh, those very often, the action potential, as it were, the slight tensing and readiness of the muscles is not discharged. So to reduce or release the readiness that's constantly in muscles, the tension we've tightened and then release. And I like to roll my shoulders back, opening up the chest. And connecting with any deeply felt intention or longing for connection with others and just allowing that to be present. We're not doing this practice to bury or... uh, compartmentalize or abandon any true needs that are being not met at present. We want to acknowledge them, allow them to be with us on this journey. Allowing all of our internal experience to be acknowledged. Nothing is unwanted. We start addressing loneliness by truly, completely accepting ourself, including that part of ourself that feels unseen, uncared for. And just do whatever it takes to relax into whatever's supporting you, be it a chair, a couch, a floor, a cushion. Whatever is supporting you, just allow your muscles to release into it. 
and bring attention to your breath. And if you can incline the breath to have really complete exhalations that are as long or longer than the inhalations. So we might for a few breaths want to count the length of our inhalation and then the exhalation and just in, see if you can, if the exhalation feels cut off, see if you can extend it So if you count to five on your in-breath, you want to count to five or six on the out-breath. And this is aided by not pushing out the breath, not pushing out the out-breath, but just slowly releasing it. And if you lengthen the time of the in-breath and make it subtler than the Exhalations can become subtler. And when you're ready, just allow your breath to resume uh, a natural rhythm. Focusing on keeping a soft belly to receive the breath. It's helpful to breathe into the abdomen rather than the chest that actually helps stimulate the vagal nerve. And we'll just sit for a little while. Just experiencing ourselves settling in. Don't try to meditate. Just try to relax, but stay awake. Don't try to do anything. Just try to relax.
if you start to feel yourself drifting off, just open your right eyelid, allowing in sight for a moment, light, and then slowly close it. And then lift up the left eyelid, slowly closing it. Do that a couple of times until enough of a visual field has entered the occipital lobe to make you a little bit more awake. Visual stimuli tends to awaken us. I'm just trying to find that nice balance between being fully relaxed, but also alert. Letting ourselves feel whatever we need to feel, whatever energy needs to arise and pass. If we find ourselves Drifting into thought, just try to notice whatever we're not paying attention to in the body. Just bring yourself back to the feelings. Let the flow of energy, the tingling sensations, the slight contraction and release of muscles, uh, any other sensations in the body uh, occur.
So now let's practice some of these early Buddhist tools. If you'd like, while we do this, to put a hand on your heart center. Or just keep your body as relaxed as it feels. And so for our first practice, just bring to mind anyone at any point in your life who's shown any act of kindness or concern, individuals who past or present, were interested in how you felt. Any experiences with someone associated with care, soothing, or appreciation, someone who acknowledged Now, if no one comes to mind or it's difficult to recall someone at this time, visualize an ideal figure, an individual who in some way for you embodies the attributes of care, kindness, interest. Some people I know have used figures like Mr. Rogers, This figure can even be conjured up entirely from your imagination who would be the ideal figure, person, individual that would be soothing. Just allow yourself to If it's available, form an unforced smile or just a softening around the eyes. And uh, 
Let's move on to the practice of Devanusati. See if you can conjure up any sense of what a protective spirit might feel like if you were in the presence of some force. What would it feel like in your body if you had a protective bubble of care and uh, concern around you? How would you relax knowing that there was some presence available that always cared about your internal experience. Whatever feelings, emotions, sadness, longing, disappointment, happiness, joy, frustration, boredom, Whatever you were feeling was always acceptable, acknowledged, and in no way disregarded. How would it feel to always have a presence that cared about your internal experience? What would that feel like? Just allow those, that sense of belonging to express itself. So in a moment, I'm going to ring the bowl. When you hear the sound, take as long as you need to make that transition from full internal awareness to awareness of your environment as slow and gradual as you need, and try to sustain at the end of this transition from the meditation a state where you're still aware of your internal feelings and internal states as well as aware of what's going on around you 